Welcome to episode one of the Ultra Low ISO Club, a weekly podcast with host Edward Conde, Jason Konopinski, and Michael Bartosik. We spend an hour each week chatting with members of the Ultra Low ISO Club Facebook group. This week, our guest is Matt Jones. Matt shares with us his move from painting to photography, experiments with low ISO films like Kodak 2238 and Kodak 2468, 35 millimeter gas induced by film, and upcoming experiments with reversal processes. We had a blast talking with Matt, and we hope you enjoy this episode. And we are recording. <laughs> awesome. But the nice. question is, what are we recording? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so mm-hmm. good. Sorry, Matt. You, you can see we're like super organized on this. Yep. Okay. <laughs> I'm enjoying my cherry Brazilian coffee. Uh, well, it came, it's got a really good carbon footprint because it's come from Brazil. It's gone all the way to Tasmania. It's been roasted there. And then I've flown it to Thailand. Wow. <laughs> it's, it's nice. Yeah, apparently they're running out of um, Arabica, yeah? Because there's two brands, Robusta and Arabica. And there's a, a rust disease that affects Arabica. And it's slowly wiping out the world's crops. Uh, but Robusta is okay. But robusta is the stuff they make instant coffee out of, so that's not ideal. Yeah, so caffeine will caffeine will live on. <laughs> Drinking coffee will not. Yes, exactly. it will. Can we talk about my new little serenar? No, yeah, that was that was a steal. What's up with that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I just I just threw another photo in that same message thread with the hood on it. It's sexy. It is is this sexy. a new camera? What's that? That, is that a new camera purchase? No, no, this is the VT. It was just the the lens is the um, found it in uh, Earth Chop. It's a Canon Serenar 1.9 collapsible. It's a 50 uh, millimeter 1.9. Uh, yeah, I saw the picture of that on the Facebook thread. Yeah, but I just have it on the VT. The only problem is that the flange depth might, must be different because it doesn't completely collapse. It, the, the back end of the lens comes up against the shutter. Oh, ouch. <laughs> yes, you can't completely collapse it. Well, Doesn't that's that not entirely dangerous? true. If it works on, yeah. on earlier Canon rangefinders, but the VT is too late model. What you're really saying is you'll only completely collapse it once. Mm-hmm. Honestly, man, that would scare the hell out of me. I would never use that lens on that camera because <laughs> I know me. I would just hear that sickening crunching sound. One of these, th- I would just totally forget. Well, you can, I mean, you can feel the resistance on it. You're not, you're, it's not going any further. Ugh. And I think it's actually hitting the top of the, the rangefinder cam. Oh, yeah, I can see so that. It's touching that and it's not going any deeper than, it's not coming any deeper. Nice. All this Leica talk. <laughs> oh, that's can- Canon talk to the LTM too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's LTM. true. Great man, it's so good. This is Japanese talk, not German. It's true. Shit. I'm trying to load some film uh, with that book loader you got from it. Yeah, 
you did for me? That Lloyd's? Uh-huh. Oh, this thing's a pain in the ass. The Lloyd's? <laughs> oh, yeah. And, and for some reason, I was like, well, we can't man. stop the podcast because Ed is doing something related to the podcast. He's over there loading film. <laughs> <laughs> I was, like, I was wondering, I what, I was I wondering what if this was it. Going on. Yeah, right? I just assumed he was, was doing like, some IT stuff. Yeah. <laughs> I, th- I thought, is this the podcast? Wow, it's very, very relaxed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's the structure. No, no, no. Yeah, the Lloyds. It's just, it's it's different from like the Watson and how you how you do stuff. That's all. Yeah, you have to completely pull the um, the crank arm out. Yeah, yeah, and I, you know, of and course, don't I don't, it. I don't, I don't read the instructions at all, so I'm, I'm good. Yeah, I figured it out. Yeah, very, very nice. Yeah, but yeah, this is the first time I use it. That same type of bulk loader is going to load all the 2468 film because you don't need the sprocket to uh, for the frame counter. Oh, nice. Yeah, so I just have to put the thing in there and just count 24 revolutions, and it's it's, done. It kind of goes like butter. It's actually pretty nice. I like it. Yeah, I just got to get used to it, but yeah. I saved some of the old cans, which I know I have more of these cans, uh, uh, the canisters with the labels on them, so I can put the, the 2238 back in the 2238 canister. Anyway, well, if just... you need any more with pre-labeled, I know a guy. Oh, well, I figured I'd ask you once I run out. Yeah, I, <laughs> I only got like fifty of them <laughs> sitting over here. All right, so I, I guess Uh-oh. we're ready to uh, we're yes. ready to, to try to work out this format. Matt, th- thanks for being on and our sort of our guinea pig with this. Yes, thank you. Happy to be here. Ah, it's amazing. So, so Matt, just to, because you didn't get sort of the outline, what we wanted to do with this, um, we kind of bounced around a couple ideas as far as this initially being a retrospective for the 2238 project. But I, I think now we're going to kind of make it a little more general, if, if I'm correct, and like make it just about that project, maybe the upcoming 2468 project, and just slow speed films in general. And then we were going to kind of do like a little artist intro section where you give us as much or little as your background as you're comfortable with. And then talk about how you're using those two films on for each of the projects or any other projects with slow films you want to talk about. That's sort of the second section. And then our last section, we kind of just, you know, just sort of future projects you have coming and maybe things you want to do. Um, and then we just kind of wrap it up from there. Gotcha. No worries. Let's see here. That the only thing I, I'm thinking now is future. Oh my god! I never plan. What, what am I doing in the future? <laughs> <laughs> it's a nice segue to the start of this podcast, right? Because aren't you actually in the future compared to us right now? <laughs> I am. It's Thursday, the 29th of August, 8.19 in the morning. Yeah. Oh, you're, like, you're almost a full 12 hours ahead of me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if the world, like, goes into nuclear attack or something, I'll let you guys know you'll have a fair amount of warning. <laughs> That's right. 
He said, we should start calling calling you for uh, information about what's going to happen tomorrow. So you're already <laughs> there. I love it. It's so nerdy, but I love it. I was going to say our, something about our, our president, but I'll, I'll refrain because I don't know where people stand. <laughs> you know, Sorry. you know, when he was getting um, feisty with North Korea, I bought some um, thyroid radiation pills from the Israeli army on a website because we're kind of close to North Korea here. Mm. Wow. <laughs> oh, wow. That's a, a moderately scary and real concern. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. you, can still, you can still get them here locally because we're close to Three Mile Island. Mm-hmm. And imagine how much those puppies are going to be worth if the rockets do start firing around. We'll be able to sell them on eBay for heaps. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's that's a funny post-apocalyptic world, right? Like, you got to get your ra- radiation medicine from Amazon and eBay. Yep. <laughs> All right, so do we right. do we want to start this with a little intro? Oh, Matt, Matt, do you want to? Because I think we can cut this, so you could just introduce yourself and um, any background and bio information you want to share with folks. And, and, and to give you sort of an idea of what we're thinking here is, you know, you did so much like amazing testing of both the twenty two thirty eight and so far the twenty four sixty eight films. And so I was curious, um, you know, what your background was, like maybe what you do for work or what you did as a, as a young person to like kind of come up with this sort of more almost engineering systematic mindset. Um, and maybe there's nothing there. I don't know. Mm, I think I'm just anally retentive, but, <laughs> <laughs> but I can jump in. Um, yeah. So yeah. I, well, I'm, Probably people can tell from my accent that I'm not Thai. I'm from Australia. Um, but I moved here maybe 10 years ago now. Um, you know, I'm, I'm the same age as you guys. I grew up in the film world, um, made some pinhole cameras when I was young. We had a dark room at school, so uh, it was actually attached to the physics lab and I was kind of into physics. So, so we had a fair bit of access to that, which was great fun. Um, but really, I just kind of didn't. Most of my artistic life has been painting and, and drawing. And it's kind of a hobby that I need to do when there's nobody around. So you can't have family around. You can't have anyone annoying you. And when you're painting, you've got to be, well, I have to. It takes days. So you've got to be kind of like in isolation for such a long time. And then when I sort of moved to Thailand, settled down, started a family, it was not practical to be away from them <laughs> for, for three, four days and lock all the doors and not let them in. So photography kind of re-emerged as a hobby again. Um, so, yeah, yeah, it sort of took off from there. And my work background, I'm educationally, I'm an, I'm an electronics technician, um, but I've only, you know, I'm probably the world's worst electronic technician because I only did it for a couple of years and then uh, started working for a survey company in Australia. And so most of my life has sort of been working surveying that moved on to ships and navigating on ships. And now I sort of do shore support for fleets of ships. And I'm working part-time, sort of like a, a contract thing. So I'm, I guess I call myself semi-retired. So that gives me 
a lot of time to sort of concentrate on the photography, build my little dark room and, and do experimentation. So when this 2238 thing came up, it, it was a really great thing to sort of get my teeth into and, and spend a lot of time, you know, just cutting up the, the film that you sent me, Michael, into little strips and trying out a bunch of different developers. When, when I first started, I ordered a whole bunch of different developers just to put in the cupboard because it's, they're not readily available in Thailand and I, I didn't really know how long photography was going to keep going for, so I kind of stocked up. So with the 2238, it gave me a great opportunity to sort of go through the cupboard and say, oh, I wonder what this one does and I wonder what this one does and, and just uh, have a bit of a go with each of them. So it, it was just just a good um, a good thing to pass the time in between playing with ships at sea. And you know, Matt, like from from the first time that you and I first connected in the negative positives groups, that's something that always struck me about you is that you did there there was a real attention paid to developers and film and agitation schedules and developing times. Um, that you were, you know, in in my recollection, you're really one of only a handful of the of the group membership that really like keys in on those things. Yeah, I, I don't know. I think that's just part of my personality. I I kind of get fixated and tunnel visioned and and things like that. I don't have any friends where I live, so I, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's plenty of time to be a mad little scientist down there. Um, yeah, I do have kind of some crazy fixed ideas and and uh, things I do with my stand development that uh, other people don't do. And I kind of think they work and I just go with them until they're proven not to work. And, you know, you, you develop little techniques on your own. It's almost like I think I talked about on the neg pause. It's a bit like superstition sometimes, you know, you, you're doing this and it's working and you're not 100% sure if it's because of A or B or C and eventually you subtract C and you're left with A and B and it's still happening and then finally you subtract B and you realise, ah, oh, it was B that was doing that all along. So I kind of like that little science stuff, I guess. What does your notebook look like? Did you record like all your different tests that you were doing and results of that kind of stuff? Is that something that you wrote down somewhere or is it in your head? It's more a scrap paper thing that gets lost, but I do. It, all my all the photos that I scan, I put into um, Google Photos because, you know, they have that free thing where you don't have to pay anything and you can just put as many photos as you want. The, the size gets reduced maybe a little bit. And in the file name, I just have enormously long file names that mm. tell you which camera, which lens, the agitation time, the temperature, the developer. Gotcha. Massive file names. And then I just um, I just use Google to search on my own photos through the, that file naming, and I find that's a pretty good way. I'm, I'm a bit of a paperless person, I guess. Okay. Oh, that's interesting. It's like you got your own little file uh, file structure, basically. Yeah, and then I've archived all the negatives in little sleeves and then uh -huh. I write with Sharpie on the top of those sleeves pretty much the same thing that I would write on each negative. So I can kind of 
if I want to find a negative to print, for instance, I can look at it on Google Photos, find it, and then match that file name to what's in the print folders and they're sort of in date order. So I guess I probably am a bit anal, I think. Or, or just organized. <laughs> Maybe, yes. <laughs> a little bit of both. That, that, okay. that's, pretty, think... that's a pretty cool process to use Google that way. Um, yeah. Like that virtual notebook idea. Right. Right. Yeah, I think it comes from a life of moving around, so you can never carry too much stuff with you. So, you know, if you if you can put it on the cloud, you can always find it again. So all my photos are in the cloud. <laughs> what uh, have have you had an instance where you've ever had to go uh, back to your negatives at, once you've put something up on the cloud, like to do a darkroom print or to rescan or anything, or is it just more of an idea, but you haven't actually ever done it? No, no, I do it all the time, especially for printing. Um, you know, just look look through the ones on Google Photos and ah, oh, yeah, I wanted to. It it it'll be a rainy day in Thailand, and it's just not used. No, not worth going outside. So I just figure, okay, today's a printing day, and then just um, skim through the photos on on Google Doc or Google Photos, and and pick them out that way, and then go back to the negatives, and they, it sort of works because they're in order. And, mm -hmm. and I've got the file names. So yeah, it, it does work like that. Very nice. I like to think that I'm that organized, but I'm, the, the reality is, is I'm looking to my right and there's a pile of negatives strewn across my light table. Uh, I'm not nearly that organized. Yeah. <laughs> I think it comes from a bit of a neurotic thing. You know, if, if I didn't have it that way, I'd be worried and concerned. So doing it that way removes the worry and then just lets me be happy and peaceful. So it's like a compulsion. Interesting. I can appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. What was it that, that attracted you to the film in the first place? Because it's so sunny here most of the time, I, I really don't find much of a need for high ISO, film, ISO films. And I'm, so most of the stuff I shoot is low ISO. And I'm also... You know, people will hate me for saying this, but I'm not really a grain person. I don't kind of like Tri-X and I don't like films with 3200 and I don't like grain. So That was on purpose. When I found this, I was like, wow, low ISO, which is what I want, and almost imperceptible grain. When I first developed 2238, in a rodinal stand for an hour, um, it doesn't really, it, the shadows are a bit crushed for me in a rodinal stand. You know, they're not fully developed, but the grain was just incredible. Like um, my, my uh, scans are fairly high resolution. They're like 12 megapixel, 35 millimeter images. And when I zoom in, zoom in, zoom in on the computer, I just, I couldn't resolve any of the grain in 2238 from a Rodinal stand develop. Um, with, with some of the other developers, you, I can, but the, the stand development, it was so clean. It was amazing. Um, so that that got me hooked, really. Just just the, the resolution of that film and how clean it was was amazing. I'd, I'd mainly shot uh, 120 prior to that because I like printing really large. I, I print in the darkroom sort of like... Um, two foot by two foot, and you can't blow normal 35 millimetre film up to that size. 
But with 2238, you can. You know, I, I did some test blow-ups. Uh, I just I did it the, the 24 by 20 inch, which is the paper size I use, but I just did some tests on 8 by 10, but blowing up to that scale. And the 2238, it was, it was equal to any of the 120 films uh, blown up to that scale, which, which really, it rocked my world. And it, it actually made me buy a few more 35mm cameras and, and start really diving into 35mm seriously. I was gonna say, so basically this film gave you gas. <laughs> I can, I can Something remember. that Ed knows very well. <laughs> yes. I can remember being at uh, the camera store in um, Bangkok and buying 120 film. And there was a young kid behind the counter and he was, you know, just obviously just getting into photography and he'd never, you know, he was young, he'd never shot it before. And so he's looking at me and he's like, wow, you're buying a lot of 120 film. Are you a professional? I'm like, no, no, no. And he said, uh, what about uh, 35 mil? I said, 35 mil, I don't shoot that. <laughs> but I feel, really, I, feel, I feel really bad now because uh, I hope I didn't put that kid off and... Um, and I completely take back what I said about 35 millimeter film. I was wrong. Now that kid is shooting 120. <laughs> and he's broke. <laughs> and he's broke. <laughs> <That's too laughs> if, if there was a if there was an economically viable way to bulk roll a 120, I would be doing it. If there was if there was a way to do it without being a giant pain in the ass, I would do it. This, yeah, do me too. Do any of any of you guys bulk roll? Matt, do you bulk roll 120 or just 35 into 120 spools? Oh, yeah, for sure I do that, um, especially um, especially with the 2468 because obviously no sprockets. Um, but, yeah, I actually made a little uh, jig. Don't I don't know if I posted a picture of it on the forums or not, just like a little cardboard jig that's about the size of your hand, it's square, and you feed the 120 backing paper into it and then you put the end of the 35mm into another slot in it and it just makes sure that the 35mm is centred in the Ooh. in the middle of the 120 paper. Um, I do it in the dark room, you know, the lights are off, so I'm just sort of feeling around. And then you just roll them out together and um, and that little, you tape the end of it and that little jig just makes sure that you've you've got the film dead centre. Um, and I do that all the time. It it's really quick once you once you get the knack of it. It, it might take like two minutes to to roll uh, thirty five mil into a one twenty spool. So yeah, it's it's good. I need to I need to try that. I, I think you did post the photo, but I, I want to try that with the twenty four sixty eight and some of the. I I think doing like a you know a full exposure of the twenty two thirty eight across the the sprocket holes because. There's so little information in most of the film. I think it'd have a, a really nice look. And whereas a lot of films have a lot of information in that rebate area, 2238 often has nothing for for a while. Yeah, it's got it's got really clean yeah, sprockets. You eke out a little bit more real estate. Yeah, just a little bit. And and I think because like sometimes I think I personally love that sprocket hole look. Um, not as much with color because I think that that information that's on the edges in color films is kind of mostly distracting, although sometimes can add to it. And then um, with this film, I think with having no information there, I think it would just give a look that we don't see very often in that kind of sprocket photography world. 
The other the other film I used recently, it's not a low ISO film, but it had absolutely nothing in the sprockets at all. It's got no description of the film whatsoever. Is that new Lucky film, the Chinese film, which surprised me, Scott. You, you, you develop it, you pull it out, and you're like, uh, now what was this again? And you, you've got to just remember. Oh, wow. Is, yeah. is it... Is it just a rebranded film? Uh, do you know? Is that why? Or just how I don't, they make it? I don't think so. Uh, because it's Chinese, I'm I'm pretty sure it'd be a, a new emulsion made in China. But you know, I, yeah, I think this, they do make this. I think they do have a manufacturer. If this, if this film thing keeps going, for sure, there's going to be lots and lots of films made in China because they're just going to copy it all. Yeah. Is is there anybody who there now? who currently makes a color film or is it all black and white? Cause I think it's a uh, lucky in Shanghai are the only two brands I know. And maybe they're even the same brand, but they're both black and white. Right. Yeah. I don't think they've got the color yet. Um, Sherry Christensen was talking about another brand of Chinese film that she's had sent to her from a listener and she'll be, so I think she's going to be talking about that soon as well. I think they're ramping up. That would be interesting. And I, th- I think that historically, they certainly, I, I would assume Kodak has manufactured some of their products there, like some of their aerial films. Yeah. Yeah, I know Lomography, Lomography manufactures uh, quite a bit in China, or at least, you know, if you look at the box, it says made in China mm-hmm. on some of their well, films. It's true. I forgot about that. Some of their, even some of their yeah. color stuff, right? Right, right. So I don't know if they finish it there and then that's where it packages and that kind of stuff. But, um, but yeah, because the big advantage that they have there, which the rest of the world doesn't have, is they don't. They China's never signed up to any of the intellectual property or copyright agreements. You know, the the rest of the world with their free trade uh, EU and and US agreements, everybody's had to toe the line with copyright. You know, even East Asian countries, Thailand, uh, Cambodia, every, we're all not infringing on copyright anymore but china's never done that so china just feels free to copy everything yeah and that and that goes back i mean probably 30 or 40 years at this stage with just chinese manufacturing um and being a little free and loose with intellectual property i know you know even um with a number of luxury products you know there's maybe only one or two large factories that's producing those products um even in china um at the you know on contract for some of these luxury brands and what often happens like speaking i'm speaking specifically of um carbon fiber bicycle frames is that they'll there's a a process called open like an open mold where it'll get prototyped and it'll be sent off to, you know, Colnago or it'll get sent off to Specialized and, you know, any of the big manufacturers. And if it doesn't quite meet their standards, that mold that exists, um, they just start, they continue to produce off of. And then they, and then you can, you can buy, you know, what's largely is a Colnago frame. A Colnago carbon fiber frame might cost you $20,000 because it has the, it's an official frame. And you can buy the carbon fiber open mold for five or six hundred bucks. The same thing, largely the same thing. Yeah, it's it's the same with um, like if we go to the market in Cambodia, 
my wife can buy a, a Louis Vuitton copy purse and they have grades. They have grade one, grade two, grade three, grade four. Grade one being, you know, almost like a quarter the price of Louis Vuitton, which is very expensive still, but it looks amazing. Whereas grade four costs $10 and it kind of looks like it, but not really. So they've, they've really got that copy thing down pat. I wouldn't be surprised if the with the film, once they start rolling, you'll be able to buy like um, perfect film and then film that had something wrong with it, like defect film, and it'll be really cheap. I think that, that's been one of the big complaints with um, Shanghai films in the past. I know that Cat Labs, um, their, their new Cat Labs X ISO 80, they're using Shanghai backing paper and spools, and it's coarse. It is a core. It almost the the backing paper almost feels like construction paper, with a little bit of sheen on it. But the film itself is is not uh, Chinese emulsion. That's it. That's it. So they just re basically pa- cutting it down and packing it. Well, I think they're I think they're they're using the backing paper from Shanghai and the spools from Shanghai for one twenty. Um, to keep their costs down. Yeah, it's it's. I think we've all. I don't. I'm sure most of us have experienced a little bit of that Shanghai film. I think Lamography might have been using it for a while too, where the sometimes that backing paper will kind of stick to or bleed into the film, so that you get all that cool like the numbers and the yeah. the placement marks and stuff bleeding into your film, which obviously sucks if you don't want it. But sometimes it's a nice surprise and it's kind of fun. Yeah, I've had that happen a bit with Rolly films too. Uh, I don't know why, but it it does get annoying. <laughs> yeah, I've had yeah. that done with uh, Kodak films and uh, Fuji E6 film. Wait, E6? Yeah. Uh, oh, it's Provia. I think it's Provia. It was a it was an expired roller. I bought a bunch of them from my old buddy who used to shoot film, and then um, I shot it on my LCA, my one twenty. And when I went to go cross-process it, sure enough, the numbers were there. Hmm. Yeah, I just turned it into a series, number series. Have fun with it. Good thing I didn't do any portraits with it. Man, I would suck, right? Numbers all over the forehead. <laughs> Tattoos. Yeah. Tattoos. Oh, that would have been actually would have been awesome. That's too good. Okay, sorry guys. I, I I feel like I just lost where we were for a second. Um. We were, we were talking about uh, rolling into 120 paper and, mm. and bulk, bulk loading. Um, when I roll my 30, I still don't have a bulk loader yet. I'm, I'm about to buy one. But, so when I do my um, rolling into 35 mil canisters, I just do that in the dark too, which I'm kind of getting good at. But I think it would be convenient to be able to sit in front of Netflix and do it like uh, like you guys do. Yeah, so you so you just put, up, put the spool on something and – Literally sit there in the dark and how do you measure it or you just kind of guesstimate? Uh, I've got pretty, I'm really good at cutting 24 because that's uh, what fits into the 120. So I just sort of know, pull my arms out this wide and then and then cut it with the scissors. Um, and yeah, just, I have the tape already on the 120, on the 35 mil film. I just use sticky tape, you know, sellotape. Mm-hmm. And it, it and then I just sort of hold that in my left hand with my right hand. I just feel and just stick it on, wrap the tape around the edges and, and roll it up. Um, works fine, hasn't broken yet. The, the only drama I've had 
and it's not related to rolling, is when I've shot um, 2468 in the Canon 10QD, which is the camera that takes a sprocketless film, and when you when you roll the film out and you have to put it on the um, take-up on the camera and you put a little bit of tape on that take-up, I think everyone probably does that. You do that, Michael? I do, yep. And then what happened just a little while back, when it had finished and it rewound the film, and I've got it so that it stops with the leader out, which is good so I don't have to retrieve it, but that bit of tape I had stuck to the shutter. So when I pulled the 35 oh, no. mil out, I'm like, oh, hell, it, you know, it's because the, the lead is halfway into the shutter and then the sticky tape's on the shutter. So if you if you know, it's okay. You can carefully just sort of pull it out. But I didn't kind of realise, so I just sort of yanked the 35 mil out and like, oh, God, the shutter just snapped. <laughs> but it's okay. It just sort of opened and closed a bit. Yeah, I, you know, I see that some folks have posted there's a, a method where you can use like a hole punch. To, to punch the the very start of your leader and i don't know if there's a little clasp or something that that it grabs that hole but they, they said that was an alternative way i haven't tried that yet yeah or you could tape a bit of sprocket leader on there too which is possibly a good way to go i i have done that um my early test i, I did that a bunch it worked and i was able to then bring that sprocketless film into other cameras like the konica um, auto reflex t3 uh you know it seems like the take up spools pushing or pulling hard enough and it doesn't use the sprockets um to yeah. advance the film so it does advance and it cocks the shutter but then you do get a little slipping up between the frames so it's not quite as nice as the eos 10s or the um, your qd which i think gives you like perfect spacing yeah and the other the thrifty thing about that is you're using a bit of scrap film leader and you're not wasting the precious 2468 <laughs> yeah that's, that's true um you just get that little uh, well, at least for me i have that small amount that sticks out of my bulk loader but it's but that particular loader has a very very small leader to tape onto so you don't waste very much film at all uh, okay with the bulk loader that's how it works yeah i've never used one right the, you know the thing i wonder about you you know i got that um 2468 in a like a cine, like a can from you, like a, a cinema can, and then inside that can there's a bag, and it's inside the bag. I've never actually seen that bag because it's always in the dark, and I wonder: is the bag black or is it clear? Because I never know if, if I accidentally turn the light on whether it would go through the bag. I've been meaning to ask you: is it a black bag? It is a black honest. bag. Yes. I don't know because I didn't see that particular bag either. <laughs> And that will no one will ever know. <laughs> yeah, no, it's uh, they they typically come um, they typically come in plastic black bags that are yeah they're they're virtually mm -hmm. I, I don't know if they're actually light proof but I'm pretty sure they're pretty retardant although it scared the crap out of me because when I ordered the 2468 uh, from eBay it actually came in just a black bag. Oh wow. oh wow! Right, it wasn't in a. But but I actually think that that's how it is actually sometimes shipped. I don't think it was. I don't think the seller did anything funky. It looked sort of like a really official package. And I'm glad that I opened it in the dark, though, because, yeah. I you know, I assumed that it was a bag and there was going to be like another bag inside it, sort of like the typical cans. And there wasn't. Man, so That's crazy. 
it, it is kind of crazy. Um, that and, that and reminds I, me of I bought a Lubitel from from Russia because you know I like Lubitels and and that's where you get most of them from. And the dude that sold it to me, he just he got the Lubitel, he put it in a plastic shipping bag, not even padded, and mailed it to me. So it arrived. I opened the bag, and it's in pieces. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Wow. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> was it what, could you salvage it or was it totally I, trash? No, I'm using it. It's full of sugru. Sugru? Do you call it sugru? Sugru to the hell out of it. You know that putty? Yeah. Like gorilla glue. Yeah. It's like a three D printing for people without computers. You mold it into any shape you want. And you, if you use the black stuff, it's light tight. So yeah, it saved me. Wow. Nice. So for those of you who have shot on sprocketless cameras, because that's not uh, that is completely foreign to me. Are there no are, are there no gears? You know, I'm thinking if it's a if it's a sprocketless piece of film, wouldn't it run? Wouldn't it scratch the edges of the emulsion coming over those those sprocket gears, or is it not wide enough? So I'm looking at the back of mine. There's no gears. There's no sprockets. But I guess you're saying if you did shoot it in a camera that does use a gear to count the sprockets, would it scratch it? I'd, I'd say mm -hmm. it probably would. It'd have um, to come over those over that gear, right? So I did a bunch of test shots in um, in that Konica Auto Reflex, which, you know, is standard sprockets, old 70s camera, maybe early 80s. And I did not notice any scratches. But then again, it's kind of right at the right outside of the frame area so I, I wasn't really looking in detail at that area so i'd have to go back and examine the negatives but um actually i uh, you know i think i if i if there was a lot i probably would have noticed it mm. and i didn't notice it so I'm, I'm thinking it's in that case either i got lucky or it's very minimal i mean this, this will show you my ignorance with with the mechanics of those those cameras that allow shooting sprocketless film but I would think just in a normal 35 millimeter camera where that's that gear is built into the film advance, that that film running across that gear would scratch, even if it doesn't have the sprockets, if it's guiding into the take up spool. And it maybe it doesn't appear to be a problem at all. Even if it did scratch, you wouldn't care because it's not it's not in the image frame anyway. Yeah. Mm hmm. I, I, I suppose it comes down to, you know, I bet you at, uh, as we move into the, the upcoming 2468 project and we, we start getting people's participation because I'm assuming there will be a bunch of different cameras used ultimately, is that we may find that some cameras scratch the hell out of it and people report that and others don't have any problem. And I'm assuming it's going to be related to... The, whether those things are just guides or if they actually advance the film. Because I'm getting the, the sense that on some cameras, it's merely a guide and they're kind of free rolling. And other cameras, they have tension where it actually seems to pull the film along with the take-up spool. Um, it, and I could be wrong. I, I don't actually know the mechanics of those, but I, but I feel like there may be those two different systems. And I could see where if it was sort of just a free rolling guide, that it may not scratch depending on how much tension is going across it. Whereas if it's really advancing the film along with the take-up spool, then there might be a lot more tension and it could scratch it because you really are pulling it across pretty hard. 
Interesting. One of the things with, with those Canon cameras that do shoot without the need for sprockets, it just makes you wonder why didn't that become a film format? I mean, bugger APS. If you if you created cameras that use the full real estate of that sprocketless 35mm film, you're getting 35mm height instead of 25mm height and you're 35mm wide. So you could be shooting 35mm square images, um, you know, because I, I did a little calculation. It's 45% more imaging area. Um, it would have been fantastic. And it just works so well. They they don't need the sprockets in those cannons, so it's imminently doable. Yeah, I, I, I'm... I'm Hopefully this will be like maybe one of the, the first things we can reach out to uh, potential listeners or um, the group members and ask is that there may be a, a couple of films out there that never took off or were not so popular that were sprocketless or it just came too late in the game where sprocket. Cause I think that the only reason these films don't use the sprockets, right. Is, is, um, it was just for IR films, right? So they don't have for infrared films. So they don't use the little infrared sensor to measure the film distance as it's moving through. Right. Mm. Well, and, and I think especially as, as we get into these more esoteric emulsions, um, you know, the reminder here is that they, you know, and we've discovered this was 2238. It was never designed to be run through a still camera. It's just in a, it's in, with sprockets in a 35 millimeter format, it happens to fit. Mm -hmm. And that's, and that's, you know, that's certainly been the case with a, a lot of the films um, that FPP has historically had for sale is that they found surveillance films that were in a 35. They were never meant to be run through still cameras and the, the separation films and the intermediate films and, you know, all these strange and unusual emulsions that we only, we're really fortunate to have access to as hobbyists in the 21st century, because now, you know, through Michael with, through your efforts and the FBP and, you know, some of those other, um, you know, more unusual films are making it into, into photographers hands and we're getting our hands on them and be able to experiment and shoot with them. And it's uncharted territory because none of the, there are no recipes that exist for developing, you know, it ha it's been a, a lot of experimentation and a lot of failure on my part to get up to something workable. A lot of failure on your part. <laughs> oh yeah, I I, I worked a couple rolls of uh, of uh, twenty two thirty eight running it through eighteen one ten. One like my first roll that ran through it was beautiful, absolutely beautiful. Um, roll that I got from Matt Melcher, and then some of the initial stuff that I got from Photo Warehouse that I ran through was that. Really odd, looked like a, a C41 base and didn't, was not successful in AT110. And then thought, okay, let me try Cafnol. Did not work in Cafnol either. I think then we came to the conclusion that what they were selling as 2238 was not, in fact, 2238 or was really, really, really old stock because it behaved like nothing else that I'd ever seen. Yeah, I, I recall that one. That, that, was, that was the stuff that turned super yellow, right? And just weird. Or not yeah, even. it wasn't even like a yellow cast. It was like a straight up looked like a, a color film base, you know, that could have potentially been a, an S-star base that was just age yellowed, but it reminded me of a color film base. Yeah, I, I, I always kind of wish they would have solved that. I, I was curious to know what that film was because it 
did look it looked really funky. Did it like have the twenty two thirty eight markings? No, no. And I think mm-hmm. what Junior Wyatt found that it was if it was marked two thousand three, it was the old stock. Oh. But my results were so completely unrelated. I mean, completely, completely, completely different from anybody else who was shooting the old film stock, even using proven meth, you know, proven developers. Right. Uh, the first time that I ever developed 2238, pulling it off the reels um, with HC110, it at first glance looked like it was a fixing problem. Mm. I was like, hmm. Did I, I, I'm like, I know that this is, this is fresh fixer. It was a long enough fix. And it looked like the, the, the film hadn't been properly fixed or long enough. That, that's interesting. As soon as you held it up to the light, it was crystal clear and immense amount of shadow and highlight detail. That when it's still on the reels, you're like, ooh, this is not, no, this is not going to look good at all. And I'm always surprised every time I pull it off. Some, hmm. some of the old um, discussions on 2238 that I found on Flickr, they were people complaining exactly about like what you said uh they're saying you, you just can't fix this stuff it has fixing issues and other people saying hc110 just is horrible with this film and now i'm wondering maybe that they were really old threads and that's because they were using that old stuff that you're talking about yeah i wonder that that very well may be the case mm-hmm. uh, that's the exact words they were using uh, fix a problem try this fixer that mm-hmm. fixer hardening fixer non-hardening fixer they just the threads just go on about fixer and and so when i started using 2238 i'm like the fixes really easily <laughs> what are they talking mm-hmm. about yeah yeah i think i was doing five minute fixing on mine and it seemed to work very nicely and I, and i you know to, to be honest i've never i've never had a reason to fix for less than five minutes it's a it's a good amount of fixing time yeah. um i've gone longer but i've never gone under five minutes yeah, I, I never bothered to really do much research on what you'd have to do to overfix film. I know it's a concept, but all of my fixers on the bottle say two to five minutes, and I just go f- for five minutes. It's just yeah. I'm like, why not? It's easy. It's not like I'm not in that big of a hurry that the extra couple of minutes bothers me. I have done uh, 2238 at five and eight minutes um, because I understand that there is a little extra silver in there like some of the old um i think efki and the foma pan films and so i have fixed it a little bit longer but honestly i haven't seen a difference between five and eight minutes of the images coming out they they look they both look perfectly clear along the edges and the same density in the in, in the exposed areas and, and and matt uh i was doing a little research while we were chatting here there is uh, an 828 film format that is basically 35 millimeter film without sprockets. So you get a 40 by 28 millimeter image. Ooh. And, is there uh, an 828 a, camera? I, it looks like there was. This is old. It says Kodak <laughs> introduced it in 1935. Oh. And then they made a Kodak Bantam uh, consumer camera for it. Because because I was wondering, because I think, you know, 120, 126, right, or 127 is kind of roughly a similar size. And I think 127 is on backing paper and it doesn't have sprockets. Um, so I was wondering if, yeah, if there was like some 
into, I mean, I was like, sure, there had to be some sprocketless 35 millimeter film at some point. If, if they had 127 and, and 126, although I think 126 does have some small sprockets, right? Like some weirdly spaced ones or something. Yeah, I don't know. I've never shot 126. Because I guess one of the things I worried about was film flatness. And mm-hmm. and so that's why they have a, you know, guides on either side to hold it flat. But when you when you spool the stuff into 120 paper, um, you know, it's it's sort of it could easily curl and, um, you know, you've got not much film flatness there, but the sh- they look awesome, really. I've actually found the the film doesn't curl because it's under enough tension. The only thing that makes it curl is if you're using really curly backing paper, that really cupped backing paper. So when I'm spooling into 120 spools, I'll look at the backing paper and I'll say, oh, no, that's too cupped. I won't use that one. I'll, and I'll pull another one out and go, yeah, that's a flat backing paper and um and that really helps with the flatness i i'm so looking forward to trying that process that looks that that actually sounds fun um i'll have to steal your jig idea because that, that sounds like it makes it a lot easier yeah i i wonder if someone could 3d print them <laughs> <laughs> that would be really that would be actually really cool D- dustin started 3d printing he did yeah, yeah, he's trying to. He's going to make um, that uh, panorama mask for his SLR. <laughs> oh, it's the, 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 like the Minolta well. one. Yeah, like the Minolta one. Yeah. Did, did yeah. anyone tell him you could just get that Minolta one for eight bucks on eBay? Well, yeah. <laughs> well, I kept on looking for one, and I can't find one after you bought that one. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But he, I guess he's already had it in his mind that he was gonna, uh, he, he was gonna try to three D print one. I was no, gonna that's... send him the map. I was gonna send him the mask that I had from my LC wide, mm-hmm. and see if he could just make make one out of that, and then just you know make the dimensions for the panel. That would be we'll really see. cool to to see. You know, that's a that's a really fun project idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah to 3d print those they, they, they the minolta one looks so delicate it's kind of amazing it's almost like you don't really want to touch it you know what i mean right mm. yeah yeah so to have something 3d printed that might be a little beefier um might be kind of fun it, it feels like it's like the lamography ones i'm assuming you feel like you can just take them in and take them out and you don't worry about the fragility of them too much yeah no not at all they're just little plastic ones. Yeah, this this Minolta one comes in a case, and I think you would want to carry the case around with you if, if you decide to swap it out. It, oh, nice. It, it does look fairly delicate. It's interesting. All right. That was a nice little sidetrack into 828 film. Yes. And rolling slow films on backing paper. I think if you know if, if there's a file of a, a film format that is itching to come back, it's 126. Because there's so many 126 cameras that exist. I mean, the Kodak Instamatic was, was probably millions of them still around. And that until there's a viable way to crack open the old, I mean, you can crack open the old spools and keep the backing paper and run the 35 in there. I think that's, that'll be the next, you know, Kickstarter film format that comes back. Because just because there's so many cameras that are still workable that are out there. 
Well, it's just perforation at this point, right? Everything's in place. I think that the Factmatic adapter uh, is already out there that allows you to run 35 millimeter film in it. And I think if you could just figure out how to get the appropriate sprocket holes, any of this, any of this film that we have that's currently sprocketless um, could work. Because that's the challenge with the Factmatic adapter, right? Is that some cameras will allow you to respool a standard 35 millimeter film in there and it'll work and I'll, and more of them won't it sounds like from yeah reports. You, you almost have to do like a dry fire um and and cover the cover the lens to, to yeah. figure out the spacing yeah because there's there's yeah, they, even nicer cameras right like i have a minolta 126 slr that's actually a beautiful little camera it's a lot like a Minolta autocord, like a gorgeous lens, a really nice body. It, it feels great in the hand. Like it's, it's a well-built machine. I think a little nicer than the, the typical Instamatics. Um, and I'm going to get around to getting one of those Factmatic adapters at some points. And, and I'm hoping that it will work mostly because right. You get the square format. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That'd be, that'd be pretty wild. I mean, yeah. that's the, that's the joy of 126 films um shooting square format yeah and 126 square format 2238 film it'd no one would be able to tell they just think you've shot 120 with a hasselblad or something that's so true. much resolution well isn't isn't there um there is a relatively famous photographer that was a journalist right who who sort of breached that gap of uh, the whole 120 35 millimeter because I, my, my recollection of his story, and I wish I could remember his name, is he was a journalist, and the expectation was you only shot 120 film be, because of the resolution that 35 millimeter was just not considered a serious format, and, and people didn't use it for serious work. And apparently he shot all his assignments on 35 millimeter and just never bothered to tell the editors and just sent them, you know, basically like prints, like without showing them the negatives or, or the contact sheets. I can see that happening. I mean, I've, t- I've talked to some old um, newspaper photographers, you know, who were in the, the, the film heyday. And they said that the, the largest that they were ever, that you ever needed to produce to was a five by seven. And almost all of it was done on that, you know, for the ones that I'd spoken with, or almost all were doing it on 35. Um, if, if only for number of exposures per roll, and the ease of loading, they were shooting everything on 35. Yeah, I, I think I think historically it, it was probably always been the, a similar story as to now, right? Like at one point, eight by ten is the standard, and then smaller and smaller formats become utilized in standards, and then certainly, probably by I would assume World War One, World War Two for sure. Thirty-five millimeter is the de facto standard for photojournalism. Um, maybe well, a little later. Yeah, I would imagine it, it would probably be a bit later. You know, if you if you're thinking, you know, um, Henri Cartier-Bresson was shooting on thirty-five. Got everything on a on a Leica three or Leica C three C um, with a fifty millimeter lens. And, you know, the, I think what, what 35 did um, for popular photography is it democratized the format. Mm-hmm. 
you know, now now cameras had a small form factor where they were easily to be handheld. Mm -hmm. I mean, you you know, you you look at an old Arnak um, like that, and you see that the there's the entire design is built around the the dimensions of a 35 millimeter spool, and there's little to no um, wasted space. Like it's such a compact form factor because they completely that kind of Bauhaus design completely embrace everything is built around the, the dimensions of that spool. That's actually really interesting. I've never looked at the history of the of the Barnax to understand why, um, sort sort of why. I mean, my my general generic history is that some, some cinematographer wanted a smaller tool to take some on set photos. Correct, uh, and the same size format as their their motion picture, and then out of that was born the modern thirty five millimeter um, camera, like mm -hmm. sort of in a in a nutshell. What was that? The Barnack was that the first? Yeah, they the Asiker Barnack designs were the. I mean, they they there there's no well, it's part of the reason why there's the um, the uncoupled rangefinder and viewfinder. And that why there was a, such a substantial increase in size when you went from the Barnack Leicas to the M bodies, you know, when they, when they, uh, it was a coupled rangefinder and the complexity of that mechanism required more space and they, you increased the vertical height of the camera. Well, that's, that's interesting. Yeah. I guess you, you would have to for, for the prism, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was the only way that it was able to be accomplished. And I, you know, I for one actually really enjoy shooting um, the early Leica or the early Canon rangefinders, the one that were the uncoupled rangefinder, where your your eyes switching between the the rangefinder to the view back to the range, or using an accessory finder. Um, you and I have talked about this, Michael. It it, it doesn't work for everybody. It doesn't mm -hmm. work for everybody, but the, it does put me in a particular mindset to shoot. Um, requires a and I can hear Michael cringing already. It requires a slowing down <laughs> that that other rangefinders or other 35 millimeter cameras just don't have that same experience. It does it does create a certain level of intentionality and mindfulness in shooting that other cameras don't. My perspective. It, it gives you some kind. It, it gives you a bit more um, freedom in your composing, yeah, because you pay attention through the one viewfinder you get your focus and then you go back you, your focus is finished you forget about that so when you're focusing you're pointing on some a, a limb of a tree that you, you you get the bark in focus then you go back to your composing window you no longer have to point at that tree to know you're in focus and you just shift the camera around to make the composition exactly how you want it so it gives you that little break in your mindset you know yeah absolutely yeah, it's it's um, I, I've I've come around more to appreciating it. I, I don't shoot my Barnack Leica very often because I don't, I don't love it. I, you know, I don't like having to switch those windows too much. But I think I use the same technique on my on my Bessa system, where when I'm especially when I'm doing street photography, where essentially now I'm so used to metering with my iPhone. And, and knowing, hey, probably for the next couple hours, I can shoot these settings because this is the light and my environment's not changing very much, right? I'm like, 
three stop difference in the shade versus the sun. And so I, I kind of know that as a, as a working thing when I'm on the street now and I will find a spot and then pre-focus the VESA to some spot on the pavement. And then I just wait until something interesting walks into that framing a lot. Mm -hmm. And so really I am, I am definitely doing the same thing as it sounds like to, to what you guys are describing. So I, I probably should pull out the old Barnack sometimes and give it a little more love because I really am often shooting my Bessa in the same way, especially with the, the 35 millimeter lens. It just, I feel like it gives you that little extra space and latitude and, you know, I'm, I'm not a purist in the sense that I, I'll just crop the image to get the all the ultimate composition. But I just, once I've got a spot fixed and I've got the focus in, I'm just waiting, right. For something, something to come into the frame and knowing that I'll have to crop it or something a little bit later, because if I move, then I have to refocus. Or you, you know, you, you shoot it F8 and you, you use depth of field to your advantage. Mm-hmm. You know, I've, I've made this comment before on a on my on a thirty five millimeter focal length. Um, you know, my my Canon thirty five one eight lens. I typically shoot it up. I usually preset my focus to about eight feet, and at eight feet, that gives me five and a half feet to fifteen and a half feet of acceptable focus, acceptable sharpness in that range. And so there's there's not a there's not a lot of, of hunting for tack focus and using depth of field to my advantage. Mm -hmm. Now, do you feel like um, are you shooting slower films when you're doing that, or are you you're shooting faster films? Because because I find the, the the one interesting conundrum I'm always in is I shoot so much twenty two thirty eight now on the street, and really for the way I'm developing it, I. ISO 12 is kind of where I, where I want to be to get the results I want. And, you know, F8 just a little, I feel like the shutter speed's a little too slow for me at F8. Um, and so I need to be around five, six or four to kind of get that balance of stopping motion. But then I have a little bit less depth of field to work with. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I mean, I don't shoot a lot of slow films, to to the same amount that you are, um, just yeah, let me see if I'm. Let me grab my thirty five and see. So at let's say eight feet at five six would give me. I mean it's it's slightly less, but not not appreciably much. I mean for for five six it at eight feet it's six to just under fifteen feet. That's about the same, really. So that's really not much of a difference at all. I mean, so you know, I, I mean, if you're going to a fifty, then 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 that that gap is a lot narrower. Is that that Jupiter thirty-five millimeter we're talking about, Michael? In, in my case, it is. Yeah, you know, I'm, the, I'm so falling in love with that lens right now. Yeah, oh, I was hoping you'd say you're sick of it. You want to sell it to me? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so you sad did. that you got a bad copy because the the one that I have is I, I'm I'm actually pretty surprised by how well it's doing overall. Like I don't I don't think it's exceptional, right? Like it, it doesn't blow me away, but it's such a 
like a good shooter that I also like I'm I'm every time I develop film from it I'm encouraged to go shoot it more not you know I don't mm. it's 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 interesting and and I do I read all those things online and it, it really has such an interesting reputation as it's either really loved or really hated I feel like you yeah, know, I, it, I I honestly think you're just saying that because I told you I wanted it <laughs> you know i i think i think with the with the jupiter lenses they're avoid anything made after 1985 hmm, interesting why is that um i think that's just kind of been the the conventional wisdom uh, around those lenses is that after after 85 i think they may have changed um where the the factory was located or the availability of materials and um, that the the consistency of the lenses dropped off significantly. Gotcha. And so you can you know you you, you get a half a dozen uh, Jupiter twelves, and you might have one that's really good, and the rest are kind of mediocre. And you might have a bunch of dogs in the same mix. I agree because I I bought a like I've got quite a few Jupiters and they're all fantastic except for two that my twelve that doesn't work at all because I think someone's put it back together wrong and a Jupiter 9 that I bought and it is a new one it's like the black um, metal and it I think I might have got it brand new actually or at least never used it's the 85 millimeter f2 and it's horrible it's just got all crappy you know astigmatisms and whatever you call that it just it's a horrible image compared to all the rest of them so I think you might be right about needing to get an old one. And there's something about there's a I think it's a Jupiter eight is the thirty five, um, thirty five maybe like two eight or I think it's a two eight, but the the rear element just kind of hangs off into space, and it's a little disconcerting. That's the twelve. Is that the twelve? Yeah, the rear element is like it protrudes, and it's, it's just like it's, hanging out there. It's just hanging out, and it's just like this. I mean, it's actually really a gorgeous curved element, right? That just—it's mm -hmm. like when you look at it, you're like, "That is beautiful." And then when you start putting it in the camera, you—you you, like, I immediately put the camera in bulb mode and opened the shutter when the first time I mounted the lens because I was like, "I—I I don't want to ram this thing into my shutter because it—it mm -hmm. it, it sticks that far in." And and there's a lot of resources online, for instance, to say you can't mount that lens to the Bessa R because it will hit the shutter. From what I can tell, I shoot it and I've shot it in bulb mode a bunch of times and now I've burned like 10 rolls of film and I, I don't see any interference with my shutter on it. But I'm guessing that it's another one of the things about these Jupiter lenses in general is that over the years, I think there are subtle design changes and, cer and certainly probably not all the tolerances were always met. So I do think some of these lenses are physically a little bit different and some versions probably would be just long enough to jam into the shutters and other versions are acceptable yeah when i, I when i i had a, a jupiter 12 for a short amount of time I, I think i may have just borrowed the lens and i mounted it to my canon p and it you know the the mount fit um however it the the lens was not deep enough um to hit the rangefinder cam so you could you you were you were stuck doing um, zone focusing. Ah, 
because you you weren't you weren't actually getting like you could focus the lens on the on the lens body but it wasn't reaching the cam for the rangefinder mechanism so it wasn't it wasn't uh moving the patch mm -hmm. did, did yours work okay like that because that's how mine is it it doesn't it doesn't hit the cam so you can't rangefinder use it but with mine even zone focusing on my canon 7 it it's way out like it's it's way mm. off no, this one was this one was nice and accurate, um, right. but when you know when it, <laughs> I enjoyed the rangefinder experience, and when it took that out of consideration, I was like, well, I don't really need to be using that lens anymore. Yeah, and there's something up, that, it, it's got that funky um, the recessed aperture setting that you almost need to have a, a vented lens hood, otherwise you're just pressing in there with your thumb to turn to set the aperture. Yeah, it, this my Jupiter Twelve is the same way. You you can just sort of put your fingers on the front of, of the lens, and you have it's so recessed you don't have to worry about touching the glass, and you could fairly easily rotate the, the aperture that way. But it is a funky design. There is no there's no real switch. I mean, I suppose you could probably learn to switch the aperture from you know while you're holding the camera, but. It, I typically have to actually do it, like look at the lens while I'm doing it. There's no, it, there's no changing the aperture on the fly. Mm -mm. With no. that lens, and, and you know, having a lens hood on just makes it a little easier. Mm -hmm. I love the, I love that recessed um, aperture ring and the, 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 like the clickless stops. I love that. It's really, it's beautifully designed. It just becomes a little bit of a challenge to use. I have the same kind of beef with the, uh, the Indostar. It's so easy to knock the aperture, you know, to to um, shift it to a stop up or a stop down without even thinking it, without even noticing, because it's so easy to move. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I always, I don't know how you guys feel. I I I sort of don't love the the clickless apertures. I, I like I like lenses that as I'm, you know, I can sort of count in my mind where I'm at. Like if I start at wide open, I just Right, you learn how many clicks to get to where you want, so mm -hmm. it's more tactile. And I feel like they don't slip as much. Whereas most of the lenses I have that are clickless, I, I'll look down four shots later and it's at f11, and I was thinking it was at five six because mm -hmm. it just seems to migrate and wander. I don't, I don't know if you guys have that challenge, but I, I feel like that afflicts me. I, I lose a few frames <laughs> often for that. Yeah, I've been there. No, I don't have a Leica. <laughs> I don't have a Leica either. <laughs> well, that's actually not true. I got the Barnack, but it's—I don't know if you could really count those as as Leicas because they're so. Does it, does it say Leica on it? It does uh, say Leica on it. When the when the Leica three, you have a three F, right? Yes. Okay, so when the three F came out, it was on it was waitlisted for the first three years. Really, I don't I don't know the history of it. Yeah, when and it it actually was run. Um, it was produced concurrently with the M two, mm. and it was still you know just to to speak to how successful that design was. It was on back order for the first three first three years, and in you know nineteen. I think it was 51 to 57, the 3F ran. For, so it was adjusted for inflation was a 
$3,500 camera. Wow. In well, 19- my world is a $3,500 shelf queen, but it is beautiful. I love yeah. looking at it. I mean, it's, I, I keep wanting to do a review for the negative positives of it. It, I mean, it has more features than my Vesa R. I mean, there are like so many features on that camera that I had to use the manual to figure out all the things it could actually do because some of them were just unknown to me, right? I'm like, I don't even know what that feature is. I see there's a knob and it does something. And then even after reading it a couple of times, I'm like, I'm kind of not even really sure still what it does, but I know that it has something to do with flashes and I'm never going to shoot flash on it. So I'm just going to remain slightly ignorant but it's it's weird to have a camera that is more advanced feature wise than like a much more modern camera oh yeah i mean they're just they're they're beautifully constructed machines they're amazing i think i think that for me that's why i gravitate towards the the rangefinders because i find that they have um to me are feature rich in a way that comparatively slrs just to, to, for, to for me don't feel to have the same attraction. I've just I've, I've always felt really drawn to to rangefinders, um, and and much prefer shoot them. I have one I have one SLR, one, it's Canon FDB. I'm staring right at it. I think I hated them forever, and then now I got this Jupiter 35, and it just it unfortunately fits my style so much that I'm becoming that guy who takes his rangefinder out every week. Um, multiple times, and I'm like, oh my god, I'm becoming that guy I didn't want to be. <laughs> the rangefinder guy. The rangefinder guy. But uh, it, it's also because, and I don't want to hurt anyone's feelings, because this is just a personal approach. I, I actually feel more lazy with the rangefinder than my than my um, SLR. So, like, because okay. I literally take one meter reading. And then I'm like, for the next hour, I'm just shooting this constant shutter speed and this constant aperture. And I, I'm pre-focusing. So I'm literally just kind of walking around almost pointing and shooting. Um, because the, the system for me is not fast enough to focus uh, sort of immediately and where I want and when I want like an SLR. So, so I have a harder time watching scenes in real time through the viewfinder. I do find myself more sort of just standing on the sidewalk, hanging out, waiting for something to come in to take the shot, as opposed to kind of walking around with my eye to the viewfinder and taking the shots as I see them through the viewfinder. Mm. Um, So I feel much more active with an SLR, and I feel like it's much quicker, and I am able to capture a different kind of scene and focus on it. But with the rangefinder, I do feel a little bit more like, ah, I'm almost kind of just pointing and shooting, but not without thought, right? I've had to figure out, I kind of want this spot on the sidewalk. Wait, you know, like, I like that light. I like something in the background. And so I think I'm, I'm seeing things in a different way, but I'm using the camera much less technical, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there's also, I think, an interesting outcome from that is I get I almost get um, a more cohesive set of images at the end of the day because I'm not I'm not changing my shutter speed and aperture all the time and so somehow I feel like shooting that constant thing it, it 
makes the sets more cohesive if that makes sense no it absolutely makes sense i mean it, and it's interesting because i and, and and we i think we're we've just completely taken over this conversation um you know i think i'm not speaking down on slrs i'm not i'm, I'm mindful about that um but mm -hmm. i think that the 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 rangefinder experience for me does require us not um it I, for me requires us a, a different um pre-visualization because i have to i have to know um what the the effect of what will be in focus versus what is out of focus if i'm shooting um at a shallower depth of field that will accommodate that and i have to i have to know with that lens um what i can expect and compose that image in my head at the moment that it's captured where an slr because you're looking directly through the lens it's right there in front of you would you mm -hmm. agree i i would i don't know how ed and matt feel about it i don't know if you guys shoot a lot of range finders or if you're mostly um slr shooters or i i know ed's a lomo shooter yeah i'm a lomo shooter so i just shoot <laughs> just shoot and he doesn't have a leica and i don't have a leica but i did buy uh leica adapters for my fuji so eventually at some point i'll probably look at getting the leica lens i guess getting some m glass something maybe they're so expensive so who knows <laughs> just one thing with the the rangefinders and slrs and glass i don't know if any of you guys listen to the um large format photography podcast uh when they had jason lane on and he's the fellow that makes uh dry plate and he was talking about uv sensitivity um with dry plate and wet plate and he also mentioned that films uh that are not designed to go into cameras are sensitive to uv light uh, whereas films that are made for for cameras block out uv light um, so it is possible that some of these films that we're using in this low ISO club, um, like 2238 and 2468, are sensitive to UV light. And if you use an older lens that doesn't have a UV blocking coating, you may get a different result from using a newer, uh, you know, M lens or SLR lens that blocks out the UV light. Um, no one's tested that yet, I don't think, but it's just interesting to keep in the back of your mind. That, that, oh, well, what would you anticipate the effect being? Like, what, like what I, would we look for if we, if we wanted to test this? I, th I think what he said was the reason to block out the UV light is mm -hmm. because it focuses uh, differently to the visible light, which is the same as infrared light does. So you you may get a bit of a bloom, or you may not get quite as sharp a detail, but mm -hmm. you're going to but you're going to get more light for your ISO rating sort of thing. So your image will be brighter. That, that that's really that's that's interesting to me because I I have felt like um, since I started shooting the Jupiter on my Bessa, and I was shooting so much of the twenty two thirty eight in my Canon. Uh, EOS 1N with a 50 millimeter, you know, super modern, like a 50 millimeter lens made last year. Um, that that the especially the Dust R and the Jupiter lens on the Bessa 
the my images do, do feel brighter and a little bit softer. But I was just thinking that was, oh, they're older lenses. They're not coded. And so it was just like an optical aberration from the lenses themselves. I didn't, I, so I might actually be seeing that UV effect, but just thinking it was just something about the coding of the lenses. Like, oh, they're just a little less contrasty than a modern lens. Yeah, it'll be really interesting to, for someone, I don't know, I don't know if I'll do it or if someone else does it to just do some side-by-sides and see if, I guess you're going to need two lenses that are, pretty similar like it would be nice if you had two versions of the one lens one that you know is coded and one's uncoded but everything else optically in the lenses match and to do a side by side like that well you could uh, for instance you could do a side by side with the same lens right and just pop and pop a uv filter on and take it off ah uh, yes that other guy on Flickr mentioned that didn't he but he never did it uh i, I yeah i don't know if i saw that but yeah that uh, if, if that's what we're saying is that it's just if we had a UV filter and I know like a lot of folks shoot with them standard um, I tend to not have filters on my lenses I don't know why but that's I, I actually may try that that's a that's a fun experiment and it's 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 sort of a fun nugget of something to add to the the conversation in this ultra ultra low club here yeah that's a good idea I don't think I have any UV filters but yeah look if you do that, I'll, I'll really look forward to seeing it. I just yeah. bought some that I think I, I'll, I can try it on my uh, little Nikon L35 point and shoot. That one mm -hmm. goes to 25, so I can I can definitely uh, give it a go with my 2238 and see if I see anything different. But you're going to need to make sure that that point and shoot doesn't have a coated lens already. Oh, okay, so it probably does. Never mind. Yeah, I'm, um, I have yet to shoot anything on this with the Serenar and it's an early um, collapsible lens which they often had very very thin coatings um, so I'd actually be interested to see what those results might be I, I, I love that we just generated another little sub project um, for this because that, to me that's really the whole fun of having a a, a sort of a more specialized group overall, or even the, the 2238 project or the, the upcoming 2468 project is because we all take thousands of photos all the time. It's kind of nice to just sort of narrow your focus down and explore sort of some things in detail. Uh, I'm super excited about this now. Yeah. And I mean, it ultimately adds to the, um, you know, to the collective wisdom of, of everybody involved who may come across the film at some other point. To, to know, you know, and, and I mean, we're, we're providing a level of detail and, and real world experience that doesn't exist on a data sheet. Yeah. Yeah. It, and I, I wish we actually in these groups and these projects in general had a, had a better way to, to organize that data. I think one of the things I'm noticing and, and Matt and I've kind of been chatting about this on the side, doing some of the, the pre-work for the 2468 is, you know, like how to how to get all that testing information condensed in a way that somebody can actually use it and find it useful. Because, you know, even still in the 2238 group, now that it's a little wider, we still, you know, we get a fair number of questions about developing, even though 
you know, we have a pretty extensive development section, but I think it's not, it's not presented in a usable or manageable way currently. Mm. And, and, and then I think, um, I, I think scanning adds that extra wrinkle. Whereas I feel like a lot of, a lot of folks feel like, well, that's sure. I see your results, but I have no idea what you did in post. And so I'm, I'm almost wondering if we should in the future, make a thread that shows a, a, you know, a straight scan, if you will, like a flat scan. And I know that will still be variable, but at least it's closer to maybe what the negative looked like versus a final edit. Because I mean, I, I know I certainly edit my images a little bit to personal taste, um, as opposed to what my scanner gives me. And, um, I don't know if that information is really useful to people or not. Just just show them, hey, here's what a flat scan looks like. Yeah, I also like it when people just hold up the negative drawing and take a picture of it, you know, with their hand or something in there to to sort of get an idea of what it what it looks like. Yeah, I like that a lot too. I, I love it. And, and, and to anybody listening, they they won't be able to see this for just a little while yet. But Matt's been testing the the 2468 for the upcoming project. And he recently used uh, a paper developer on this film instead of a, a film developer. And I got like super excited when I saw the photo he just described of him holding up those negatives. They look beautiful. They, they, they looked like what I was dreaming about when I ordered that film. And, and I know there's still some testing to go and to get sharpness and stuff in there, but yeah, they looked so cool. It was like black and white slides. Yeah, oh, wow. thanks to thanks to Dustin. Yeah, yeah, Dustin Nickerson found a reference. He, I think he was telling me he found that reference in a biology textbook. It was like some wow. something on some microfilm that they were using for some application, and um, you know the suggestion to try a paper developer. It, it's, it seems like an interesting one, and I'm and I'm wondering now if if we're going to settle on some hybrid developer where you kind of hit it with a little bit of rotenol or something that, um, you know, is a solvent developer to kind of define those grains a little bit more and then do the rest of the development process with Dectol for, you know, I know some folks do that with HC 110 and rotenol, right. Um, for, for Tri-X and HB five, I've seen that done quite a bit. So I'm wondering if some hybrid, developer combo uh, will bring out a little more sharpness and but still give us those those the blacks look really rich that that's, that's what i liked um and i didn't see them in person but based on your photo they look really rich yeah it's the same with 2238 as well we you go with rodinol and you get really good blacks but they're, they're a little bit crushed and then you go with extol and you get really good tonal range well-developed blacks but they're not as deep and if you could only have the best of both worlds and the, the paper developer does seem to do that. It gives you really nice blacks. It gives you a good range of tones, but it, it's lacking in um, sharpness. Um, and mm. next is uh, next, my next test is to actually try 2238 in the paper developer and just see what that looks like as well. Mm. I'm, I'm really excited for that. I, I'm actually also excited. I don't know if you guys saw today. I, and forgetting his name, he just joined the Ultra uh, ISO Club. I think his name is Ethan, and he was experimenting with a a reversal process using citric acid and um, 
I think like a peroxide. So he was shooting paper negatives, developing it, then exposing it to citric acid and peroxide to bleach it, and then re-exposing it um, and then getting a positive image. And I, I don't know if that works for some of these films too, or just for the, for the paper, but um, it looks amazing. It looks really cool. And it looks pretty simple to do overall, like once you see it done. Yeah, that's Mr. Camerodactyl, Ethan. Yes, yes. Oh, yeah, yeah Ethan I, Moses. Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, that's correct. I, was, I forgot his last name. When Just before we started uh, this recording, I was on the internet buying, uh, uh, which one is it? The hair bleach. What is it? Peroxide. And, uh, and some um, citric acid to try it because I watched his latest video and it, it looks really easy to do the black and white reversal on paper anyway so yeah i'd definitely be willing to stick some um, 2238 in there and see if you can get a positive out of it yeah i mean i can't see what the difference would be overall so i don't see why it wouldn't work unless there's yeah. something fundamental i'm missing about the difference between photographic paper and film as far as the sensitive silver yeah we'll see yeah, no, that that's exciting. I'm that's like two, I think two fun upcoming uh, experiments for twenty two thirty eight, and and I and I guess ironically you could take twenty four sixty eight and make it into a negative. <laughs> <laughs> oh wow! Yeah, is that the is the twenty four sixty eight the um there there's the it's the two different film backs or the the base colors. There's one that's red and one that's yellow. One yields a positive, one yields a negative in the same chemistry? Yes. Yep. Okay. Yep. And I don't remember if the other one's yellow or not, but there definitely is a, there, there's, yeah, there's essentially two polarities of that film. I have the tech, I downloaded the tech sheet. I have it um, in my files, but I do remember reading that. Yeah. So are they both called 2468 or is the negative one called something else? I, I think they're actually. See, I think they're both 2468s, but it is quite it, incredible it, that this it, 2468. It breaks my brain thinking about how they can be processed in normal black and white chemistry, and one will yield a positive, one will yield a negative. It does, and it it breaks your brain when you're trying to work out the normal rules of uh, overexposing and the dark and negative, but if this is a positive, so and then overdeveloping a dark and negative, but this is a positive, you know. All these things, it's it's kind of like when you live in the southern hemisphere and 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 you're looking at the sun and it's in the northern sky, and then you move to the northern hemisphere and the sun is in the southern sky, and it just breaks my brain. And the same mm -hmm. thing with this two four six eight, it just breaks your brain. Yeah, no, no I, I'm I'm with you because I and I think this will be something fun as we as we launch the twenty four sixty eight project and start having discussions, but. And I know we've chatted about this a little bit, but there are some there are some different things you have to consider, right, when exposing it. Because I don't know if it's exactly the same as direct positive paper, but um, you know, my re my recollection with direct positive paper is like it, it basically starts. I think it starts black, right? So you're really ex exposing for the opposite as when you shoot negative films. Um, so when you think about over underexposing, it's almost like you need to change um, 
how you're thinking in your mind about how over and under exposure works. Yeah, right? so correct. If you want it to be darker, you underexpose, I think, or you overexpose it instead of underexposing it. I, I think it's something like that. And I'll have to, I'll have to check into it, but my memory, my memory says, yeah, there's something weird about that. Well, it, it sounds, you know, what, what you're describing is, um, I mean, that's, that's very much like printing in the darkroom. You know, it, it, it does require the same kind of um, flip-flop in the brain because you're, you know, what is, because you're, you're projecting light through the negative onto the paper, areas of density on the negative are going to appear white on the print. And vice versa, but the, but it it doesn't exactly because if you leave a darkroom print in the developer too long, it goes black. But if you leave two four six eight in the developer too long, your highlights burn. Hmm. Yeah, <laughs> that does your head in. I like it. Does your head in? So, are you saying that you you basically you you hit a point in the developer where you reach your maximum blacks, but then your whites essentially keep developing? I I think that you if you left it in there uh, forever, you'd end up with a clear negative. Now, I might be proven wrong, but that's what I think. Mm. Well, I, I think. I think this is going to be interesting. I kind of, I, I can't wait to actually launch this project. So I think we're a couple of weeks out and then um, I, I started rolling the film. So I just want to get a bunch of it rolled up and then start sending it out and, and seeing, uh, seeing what the results are and, and what people come up with. I mean, the, the early testing looks, looks pretty promising. Yeah. And the, and the dynamic range is a little bit more similar to like shooting Provia or Velvia as opposed to shooting a negative film to it. If you've got a really bright sky and, a, and dark shadows, you're not going to get both. You're going you're to lose something. Mm -hmm. Now, do you think that that's just because it's orthochromatic or just uh, it just has a, a lower range period? Like yeah, I, that's that's I haven't question. looked at the curves of it to see what the spectral, like what wavelengths it's sensitive to. Yeah, and is that also possibly due to the UV in the sky blowing the highlights out too. I don't know. Mm -hmm. It looks like it's sensitive from 350 to 600 nanometers and it kind of drops in the middle. So that, that's, that's interesting. Yeah. Reds definitely come out black. That's for sure. Mm -hmm. ah, I'm, yeah. Super excited. Can't wait for this to go. All right, guys. Well, what do you think? Um, should we start to wrap this up? I feel like we've, we've, uh, not that I'm not enjoying it. I don't want to. Yeah, I think it's time to wrap it up. All, all, all your time. And um, so, do we have anything else we want to talk about um, from you, Matt? Like future, any future project or, or anything that you're excited to share, or just kind of nothing on the horizon. <laughs> I think my future is this citric acid and hydrogen peroxide. Let's see how that goes. <laughs> I, I was actually curious about that. So you, so you purchased the citric acid um, from, from like from online? Is Only it... just this, just this morning when I was waiting 
uh, for you guys. I was just searching around, like, wow, you can buy bags of it online here in Thailand. And uh, the hydrogen peroxide I got is 50%. And I don't know if that's too much or enough or or what, but we'll, we'll see. I would yeah, not get that on hands. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, that was my question, I think, in his video that was, uh, and maybe I'll reach, pop Ethan an email and ask him if there's a recipe, you know, what the concentration of the citric acid was, like, if you could literally get away with squeezing some lemons in there or something like that, or you need something a lot more concentrated and the same thing with uh, the peroxide. Like, if you could just buy a bottle of hydrogen peroxide at CBS and I mean, I suppose the easiest thing to do would just be to buy it and try it. Um, but yeah, I didn't know if the stuff you bought, if it was like a commercial grade and much stronger or pr pretty benign overall. It's hard to tell because the website I use is all in Thai. <laughs> 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 not, not getting it on your hands. It reminds me of like when you get, you know, if somebody did have something like genital warts and you get that, cream for it and it says you know wear gloves when applying this and you're thinking what you're putting this on your genitals and you but you wear gloves to protect your fingers yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i think that's you know, I that a, that a 50 percent solution of hydrogen peroxide like that's a pretty strong yeah that that, that, that could be potentially pretty corrosive it's a cure for all as an oxidant yeah. Gets rid of warts. <laughs> <It does. laughs> I, I definitely think things. that's got to be the name of this, uh, this episode. Episode one, Genital Warts with Matt Jones. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> oh. I mean, uh, that's just, that's gold right there. All in the name <laughs> of science. That's, that's right. I, I'm, I, I look forward to uh, seeing, seeing those experiments of yours um I, I hope you share them in the all ultra slow group and um that's got to be so fun to try that it, I, I may be jumping on that bandwagon myself and give me an excuse to pull out my four by five and cut up some paper negatives pinhole yeah i could you could pinhole it the, the stuff that he was doing was pinhole and it looks it looks really cool it, it's just i'm lazy i don't have to cut the paper that I have for four by five, I just have to shove it in there. All right, guys, I think, uh, right I think we should just wrap this up and Matt, thanks for um, spending a couple hours with us chatting. I totally appreciate your time and mm -hmm. love what you're doing. And, and thanks for participating in the projects. And, and actually I think um, really pushed the 2238 project along and, and you and Ken have, also, I think are really going to end up pushing the 2468 project um, a lot further because I do think that's going to be a trickier project for most people to shoot. But I think with the information that you've generated so far, it's going to make you know some people actually enjoy the process because um, I do think it would have been a little frustrating to figure some of that out for a lot of folks. Thanks very much, guys. It's been a pleasure being the. Um the guest on the virgin show there it is and welcome <laughs> to the ulick <laughs> with genital warts fantastic yeah. <laughs> genital warts and virginity there it is there it is 
I like it. Do you think if we do that, we'll have to like give it like a PG thirteen rating or something on the the podcasting software? Uh, who the hell knows? I, I have no idea. About to find out. Mm-hmm. I think we'll be all right. All right, guys. All right, we Jen. Will, uh, catch you guys soon. Yeah. All right. Yeah. All right. Take care. See you guys. Bye. Bye. And that's a wrap for this week. If you'd like to see Matt's work, you can find it in the Ultra Low ISO Club Facebook group or on our Instagram feed at ultra.low.iso.club. If you'd like to be a guest on a future episode or have questions and comments, please feel free to contact us through the Ultra Low ISO Club Facebook group or email us at ultralowisoclub at gmail.com. Last but not least, I'd like to give a shout out to Dwayne Crowder. Dwayne has been a lifelong friend, and he's an amazing guy. He wrote this bumper music, and it's a piece titled, Misconceptions. Until next week, everyone. <laughs>